Welcome to Black and Green Podcast number seven. I am your host, Kevin Tucker, and it is April 17th, 2018. Uh, podcasts have been a little bit erratic, and I kind of apologize for that, but uh, I've been very busy with writing and uh, some personal stuff. Uh, but uh, Of Gods and Country, the book I'm currently working on, The Domestication of Our World, uh, The Origins of Religion, Nationalism, and Patriarchy, is been making some pretty huge strides so uh it's probably gonna stay erratic for a bit not because i want to just because uh my time can be a little constrained here and there so uh a lot of things i wanted to catch up on a lot of things i want to talk about um i'm gonna try and get a couple podcasts out maybe this week uh but i make no promises about anything first order of business the big thing to catch up on here uh, is the Cambridge Analytica story. So this has been going on for at least a couple of weeks. Um, if you, for some reason, have not caught about it, it is about the big uh, whistleblower situation uh, in which uh, it's been revealed just how much Facebook and social media uh, has been used to gather data and turn that data into some kind of weaponized or marketing term. And how much that played into, in particular, uh, things like the Brexit vote, things like the 2018, I'm sorry, 2017 election, um, to, sorry, 2016 election, uh, and just pretty much all around how much it's been going on. And it it's, hasn't gone into detail yet about how much corporations use this, but it's become apparent how little people actually know about data and about algorithms of social media and about the nature of how all these things work. Uh, and it's something that has been talked about outside of the mainstream. It uh, has been brought up a bit in the mainstream, but it hasn't really been dealt with specifically and certainly not taken seriously enough to show how much is going on and how different it is from what I guess you could consider kind of like standardized levels of government or corporate interaction and also uh, data collection and... Um, snooping, things like that. So one area of particular crossover with the anarchist world and with the general world of activism and radicalism um, has been since the Green Scare, uh, which pretty much kind of uh, petered out, I'd say around 2008, it seemed like the, the end of the big peak. But the Green Scare, if you're unfamiliar with it, was a stretch between 2000-2008, in which case all of the people involved with the Earth Liberation Front, Animal Liberation Front, people who had just seen enough of the Earth and animals being uh, tortured and destroyed and did something about it. So in the case of the ALF, you get mostly people freeing animals from cages, uh, destroying animal research facilities, fur labs, or fur farms, uh, and things of that nature, and a lot of factory farms and farms, things like that as well. Uh, in the Earth Liberation Front, burning cars, burning uh, massive condos, things like that, yuppie houses. Uh, it's pretty pretty massive thing. If you're not familiar with it, you should definitely look into it more. Uh, I'm sure we'll have future episodes about it. Uh, Will Potter wrote a book called Green is the New Red, and that was out by City Lights. I forget exactly when, but that's a that's a pretty good overview there's a, a bunch of other stuff out there. There's been some documentaries as well. Um, 
I am pretty mixed on a lot of that stuff. Uh, I know a lot of people have seen When a Tree Falls, uh, which was a documentary on the Green Scare, which I am not particularly fond of. Uh, and as time goes on, I'm feeling pretty fine with being not okay with about it. Uh, I felt that that documentary, as documentaries tend to do, really kind of historicized a lot of things about the Green Scare. And uh, when there's still people who are in prison at the time, still were in prison, and of course there still are people in prison, Marius uh, Mason being one of the most obvious, then you know, I don't think it's okay to talk about these things as past tense. Uh, obviously, a lot of the actions happened a long time ago. We're talking about some of the stuff going back to when the ELF hit Vail, which was um, 97, 98. I forget, forget exactly when, but that's really what kind of kicked it off, particularly in the United States, for ELF activity and moving on from just the first kind of stuff, uh, eco-sabotage to large-scale arson. Um so I felt that it had historicized it, which is wrong on the sense that there's still people in prison uh, and people who have gotten out of prison very recently and still need a lot of support. But also a big thing about it was because so many people in that entire process ended up snitching uh, and flipping, becoming informants. And the degree of all that, we still don't know. But there's an interview in Black and Green Interview number three with Lauren Regan, who is the... I guess you'd say one of the biggest lawyers in the entire green scare thing, defending activists. And I can't recommend that interview enough. It's a really good interview. We actually have it on the webpage, I believe. Um, so check that out. And if you haven't checked out black and green interview number three, I strongly encourage it. So a main point in bringing all that up is in the interview, Lauren Regan talks about uh, more contemporary aspects of surveillance and intervention, things like that. And, what what was really apparent about the way that what we would consider generally kind of like spying or espionage or people going undercover, things like that, um, things that we would have always put into say, this is, this is how the government does it had increasingly been moving into corporate hands and, and private firms and things like that, which was, uh, something I think you could see, uh, and something I think has become increasingly more obvious, but I think the implications of it are still harder to grasp. And the, the difference is, is that the interests of a corporation and the interests of a government are going to be different. Uh, in a lot of ways, they have the same ends, they have the same goals, and they're all capitalists. They all don't really give a fuck or anything. But, I mean, this is this is important to say, you know, it's not just going to be the same thing. The idea with a, a government case... Uh, so you could look at something like the case of Eric, Eric McDavid. In that case, the uh, FBI informant was Anna and she was a plant. And their entire goal was to say, we're going to get this group of people to agree to doing this action. They paid for everything. They paid for the cabins they went to. They paid for the food they ate. They paid for the material. They paid for and provided the materials for potential bombs that they were going to be trying out. Crafted the entire thing start to finish. And it was really kind of a, a classic case of government entrapment, uh, which is how Eric McDavid, who was the last person to get out of the, the whole thing, eventually was able to get out of prison, despite the fact that he got a 20-year sentence for agreeing to do this action. He never actually did anything. But either way, that's kind of a clear case that you could see. And even looking back to 
a lot of the work going back to AIM, going back to Black Panthers, going back to a lot of these different movements, the kind of COINTELPRO uh, government programs where they would monitor, intervene, get somebody in there to try and take things to this kind of ridiculous end, and then bust everybody, usually before the action ever happened. So with a government intervention, it's pretty straightforward. It's just create the entire situation and trap people so that it doesn't happen. With a corporate plant, um, there's different ways it can go. And we, we've seen this kind of stuff. And I mean, even uh, looking at right now, uh, natural gas companies and pipeline companies just constantly recording who's what, who's where. Uh, you know, we've seen, I've seen PowerPoint presentations of, with friends that were just pictures of them in random places or pictures of them in conferences and identifying them as like, this is a person to watch out for, for a local activist. Uh, there's there's so there's the corporate side that will just monitor everything and try and kind of help create cases and help track information so that they can hand it over to the state and then it can lead to arrests and it can lead to people getting busted if and when direct action were to happen. And a lot of times it doesn't even take that with the amount of uh, permissiveness that corporations have since the green scare, but even before then, uh, to, to claim that they're being harassed or whatever kind of bullshit term they want to use has always been there. That framework has been there and it just kind of gets worse. And then, then over time it gets easier and easier for them to make those cases if, and when they want to, the difference is, is the other side of this kind of corporate intervention and interaction. And that's what we've been seeing more and more of, I think. So it's not just a lot of this, how do we get things set up so that we can lead to arrests and we can take out these people who are involved with the organizing or, or find ways to delegitimize them. It becomes these other kind of instances. And one is activists love drama and anarchist scenes do a lot of dumb things that kind of make it really possible for outsiders to come in and shake things up beyond any kind of reasonable degree. And it, it can be totally debilitating for particular focuses, for activities, for actions and things like that, and potential campaigns. Uh, and a lot of campaigns do collapse because of this kind of stuff. And sometimes it's real, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it isn't. Uh, but it can be a lot of personal bickering and personal th stuff that just broadcast everywhere. So when anarchists and activists and things like that went on to social media pages and go on to Facebook and go on to all this other shit. It just makes it really, really easy for a person to totally intervene and troll the entire situation or amplify tensions and amplify arguments to go to these total extremes uh, for the purpose of explicitly kind of sinking that entire thing or to stack the deck for some kind of purpose that is totally out of our vision. And so that's something I think we see more and more of all the time. And then the problem is, is that some of the most extreme views that you can see might not be actually involved as a corporate or a government kind of plant. Um, it can be as simple as a troll pushing more extreme ideas or pushing more extreme ideas into absurdity. And that's what you see a lot of, um, especially on, on Facebook and stuff like that is just kind of peddling and peddling and peddling until these really kind of fringe or insane ideas take center stage and people feel the need to react and respond to them. I mean, before, you know, we always would hear shit. I would always get letters or emails or things like that. That would everything from death threats to like 
crazy kind of conspiracy theories. Um, they just kind of come and go, but it's part of the editorial process. You just expect you're going to get crazy stuff and you don't necessarily give it any attention. Um, on Facebook and on social media, it becomes harder and harder to discern what's crazy and what's not. And then it becomes this kind of weird realm where people want to apply some anarchistic ideal where, you know, everybody's got a voice, everybody should be heard and, you know, things that aren't necessarily untrue in a real face-to-face sense, but you don't know what's a corporate entity. You don't know what's a government entity. You don't know what's a real person. You don't know what's a bot. And all of those things exist and all those things exist a lot. And as we've been seeing and more and more is the case, there's so many of these things that they can shift the entirety of conversations or the entirety of any kind of dialogue into these absolute, absolute absurdist positions where it's just kind of becomes a character of itself. And on the one hand you have areas where that, that can kill actual viable projects and on the other hand, you have it where it can just totally stack the deck for more insane things. Uh, so I I think more of that's going to come in time. And I think that the, the general um, clampdown that we're seeing in terms of activism, so like the J20 being a perfect example where people are just getting insane sentences for disrupting, uh, you know, the inaugural parade, just really fucking standard shit, but people are looking at felony charges for, for little to nothing or were in some cases a lot were dropped, but some, a lot still remain. Um, you know, the things that they have done can be stacked up and used against them. Um, but how much further it's going to go and how much further it's going to, this, this air permissibility that I think exists around social media and the Facebook in particular that's all going to come down. I think people feel like because they can say something and they don't have consequences immediately that it's just kind of, they floated it out there and that's it. Um, I, that's a stupid thing to think. Uh, and, and that comes from decades of activism and anarchism and involvement in all the movements and milieus for much longer than Facebook's been around. Uh, we, we don't always see, the consequences of communication consequences of discussions and anything like that. So the idea that because there's not some immediate kind of blowback doesn't in any sense of the word or any sense of any bit of reality show that anything's going to change. So bringing that back here, um, the Cambridge Analytica stuff has really shown the the degree to which that entire process of infiltration and trolling and everything like that can just be kind of automated and pushed out there through trolls and pushed out there for any various end at any point. Some of these kind of supposed anarchist positions and things like that could be uh, sponsored by another government or sponsored by a corporation just to keep things absurd and keep anything real from actually getting through the cracks. And of course, anything real that might get people to get off of social media. But really what it shows is that the way that we interact with machines and the way that we interact with all these platforms and everything like that alters our relationship with with everything else. And so that's why we don't have that kind of face-to-face filter. We don't have that reality filter to be able to just talk to people and say, ah, yeah, this person's fucking sketchy. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to deal with them. And also it makes it possible for all these voices that kind of be on the same level and that the, the way the algorithms tend to work is that 
the more popular somebody is, the more somebody gets a response, the more they get promoted, and the more the content they're associated with can be promoted. And of course, anything that's paid for, known or not, uh, gets shared, the more that is promoted as well. So the really kind of, it's not just like one-to-one. It's not just I'm dealing with this person or I'm dealing with this bot or I'm dealing with this troll. And so this became popular and kind of blew up. It's really an entire system and the entire system is determined by algorithms. So it's not a matter of somebody sitting there and looking over all this information. The computers can do that just fine. They can track all that information. They store that information. It plays into this entire system in, in its own regard without having to have continual human interaction or moderation. So that's where this stuff starts to get a little more scary. When it starts to get outside of the realm of the things that we've known, the things we've dealt with in terms of standard surveillance, standard purpose, and standard, uh, I don't know, anything, any kind of infiltration or any kind of just trolling and shifting conversations into a certain direction, into this really open-ended kind of corporate scheme where it's, it's harder to tell where they're going. It's harder to tell why any of it's even happening. It's just some of it's experimentation uh, and some of it is just, you know, this is a, a longer game plan. And so the guy who was the whistleblower for the Cambridge Analytica case in particular it made it really obvious that there's there's a lot of instances where this is just the product of nerds testing a limit uh, and trying to solve a problem. And I, you know, it's, it's not like this person, what it sounds like um, this particular person didn't have a whole lot of interest necessarily in, in any of the ends that came out of the entire Cambridge Analytica thing. Again, something we're going to be finding out more and more about over time, but it really just came down to all these different people in these various positions saying, can I do this? Can I find this out? Can I hack this certain thing? Can I gather this information? Can I pull it all? Which again, tremendous amounts of information. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how this all went about. It's all these little pieces that piled up, but what it exposes in the process is the entire problem of data and algorithms. And I'll admit a lot of what I've dealt with in terms of technology and social media has been largely about the social and ecological consequences of it all less about this kind of long-term turning us into a machine. And I've dealt with that a bit and I've talked about here and I even said before, like the real test of the millennials is going to be when a, a human millennial passes the Turing test, which is what they use to determine if AI has been uh, convincingly human or not, or uh, I don't know, there's a better word for it, but it's slipping my head right now. So I want to read a bit from Suffocating Void and just kind of, I've got a couple of things here to talk a little bit about the algorithms themselves and the importance of data and what it means to have this kind of dual aspect of technology and this dual aspect of social media in particular, where on the one end it's trying to bring us in and lure us in, there's kind of standard issues with technology, and the other side is this more insanely malicious kind of crafting thing where you know we've, we've, we're very aware about the, the fears and notions about uh, artificial intelligence and sentient machines and things like that and what they could potentially do, this kind of we'll call it the Terminator scenario versus what seems to actually be happening is where we become the AI ourselves, where the algorithms start to determine our behavior more and where the collection of data uh, really 
completes this entire process within civilization of reducing actual beings and, and who we are nomadic hunter gatherers, wild beings into predictive bodies of the technological architecture. So this is a little bit about that from Suffocating Void, which is an essay of mine, which is in Black and Green Review. Number one, the essay is pretty widely available on the internet. Um, but, you know, it's in Gathered Remains, my new book as well. And I strongly recommend reading a physical copy. Number one, Black and Green Review is sold out, though. Uh, so the technologies being actively developed and sold serve a single purpose, to further entrap the user into the social network become the algorithm. When Facebook finally went public in 2012, Zuckerberg spoke to investors like old friends. Quote, advertising works most effectively when it's in line with what people are already trying to do. And people are trying to communicate in a certain way on Facebook. They share information with their friends. They learn about what their friends are doing. So there's really a whole new opportunity for a new type of advertising model within that. The very notion of creating an all-encompassing platform for communication is to expand on a previously unreachable areas. This is why Facebook bought Foursquare, an application that checks in and posts your news feed where you physically go. Not to be left behind, they also purchased Atlas, an application that tracks offline purchases. The information is key to automation. Every time you ask Google or Siri a question, Google, Apple, and the NSA are listening. The goal of programmers is to track your movements, decisions, thoughts, and statements to create algorithms to predict and influence your actions. The cell phone, an early platform for GPS tracking, is the perfect platform for this. It is on your person. It is your electronic leash and confidant. It's an object you can stare at when in t with intent when you don't feel like making eye contact or uncomfortable small talk. And it is a tool to continually gather information about you. Little is telling about the power of the temporary and shallow nature of the new information that, from the void than how quickly the outrage over the exposed U.S. government's far and wide-reaching surveillance program just died. Nothing changed, but everything was accepted. If the alternative option was to give up on cell phones and social networking, then it was an uncomfortable but possibly necessary evil. The users could live with it. Less surprising with the FBI's official call-out to social media corporations and platforms requiring them to offer a backdoor to organize, gather, and collect information that might have been unavailable through real-world real, real world social networking. So that is from Suffocating Void. And read a little bit here from a book called Data and Goliath by Bruce Shiner. The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control the World. And this is from the beginning of the chapter one, Data as a Byproduct of Computing. Computers constantly produce data. It's their input and output, but it's also a byproduct of everything they do. In the normal course of their operations, computers continuously document what they're doing. They sense and record more than you're aware of. For instance, the word processor keeps a record of what you've written, including your drafts and changes. When you hit save, the word processor records the new version, but your computer doesn't erase the old versions until it needs the disk space for something else. Your word processor automatically saves your document every so often. Microsoft Word saves mine every 20 minutes. Word also keeps a record of who created the document and often who else worked on it. Connect to the internet and your data you produce multiplies. Records of websites you visit, ads you click on, words you type, your computer and the sites you visit, and the computer and the network each produce data. Your browser sends data to websites about your software you have, when it was installed, what features you've enabled, and so on. In many cases, this data is enough to uniquely identify your computer. 
Increasingly, we communicate with our families, friends, coworkers, and casual acquaintances via computers using email, text messaging, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, whatever else is hot right now. Data is a byproduct of this high-tech socialization. These systems don't just transfer data. They also create data records of your interactions with others. Walking around outside, you may not think that you're producing data, but you are. Your cell phone is constantly calculating its location based on which cell towers it's near. It's not that your cell phone company particularly cares about where you are, but it needs to know where your cell phone is to route telephone calls to you. Of course, if you actually use that phone, you produce more data, numbers dialed and calls received, text messages sent and received, call duration, and so on. If it's a smartphone, it's also a computer, and your apps produce data when you get them, and sometimes even when you're not using them. Your phone probably has a GPS receiver, which produces even more accurate location information than the cell phone tower location alone. The GPS receiver in your smartphone pinpoints you within 16 to 27 feet, cell towers to about 2,000 feet. Purchase something in a store and you can produce more data. The cash register is a computer and it creates a record of what you purchased and the time and date you purchased it. The data flows into the merchant's computer system. Unless you paid cash, your credit card and debit information is tied to the purchase. The data that you send to that credit card company and some of it comes back to you in your monthly bill. There may be even be a video camera in the store installed to record evidence in case of theft or fraud. There's another camera recording you when you see an ATM. There are more cameras outside, monitoring buildings, sidewalks, roadways, and other public spaces. Get into a car and you generate more data. Modern cars are loaded with computers, producing data on your, on your speed, how hard you're pressing on the pedals, what position the steering wheel is in, and more. Much of that is automatically recorded in a black box recorder, useful for figuring out what happened in an accident. There's even a computer in each tire, generating pressure data. Take your car into the shop, and the first thing the mechanic will do is access all the data to diagnose any problems. A self-driving car could produce a gigabyte of data per second. Snap a photo, and you're at it again. Embedded in the digital photos is information such as date, time, and location. Yes, many cameras have GPS. Of the photos capture generic information about the camera, lens, and settings, and an ID number on that camera itself. If you upload the photos to a web, that information often remains attached to the file. That's from Data and Goliath. So that's a point I do want to arc back on a little bit here. I know that there's people who write about uh, wanting to make sure that data is encrypted, emails are encrypted, and things like that. Um, just from working on Black Mirror Review and having people send in documents, uh, and especially when going back and forth and putting them in a program like InDesign for layout, uh, the amount of information that is retained in a file is pretty alarming. Uh, so whenever there's a, something as simple as uh, somebody taking a file from a basic kind of program like Notepad or or just like a, the most simplistic word processor you can use, that gets transferred over to something like Google Docs and back to Microsoft Word and then back to Word or Docs. Uh, all of the layout information will be picked up whenever I put that kind of file in InDesign. It's a, it's a huge pain in the ass to actually kind of pull all that file, all that out just in terms of how the uh, paragraph is and how fonts are and things like that. So really kind of basic topical information is you can go ahead and assume that any real data in terms of the computer it was written on, the computers it was edited on, emails that was sent across, all that stuff. I mean, there's, there's this information is this data is the product. Uh, just to pull a quote here from 
Larry Page, who is the CEO of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, which Larry Page had found, uh, or sorry, had founded. Invention is not enough. Nikola Tesla invented the electric power we use, but we struggle to get it out to people. You have to combine both things, invention and innovation focus, plus the company that can commercialize things and get them to people. So the biggest thing that all these kind of corporations have done is to say, we're giving you a platform, we're doing this, we're doing that. Uh, and it's it's far more insidious than that. And the idea is that there's this dual pitch. And of course, Google's um, catchphrase was famously, don't be evil or something like that, uh, which of course is what the most evil corporation in the world would say uh, and would say that it lives by. Obviously, that's not the case. It's like, you know, you meet a person who says, I'd give you the shirt off my back. It's If you have to say it, it's not true. Uh, it's just that person's usually the person who's going to fuck you over. So technology is no different. And the more that they kind of offer, the more that they're going to be taking. And it's it's not too far off from how a bank works or something like that, where, uh, you know, you get a free account. The real thing is that your money is going to be, your hypothetical money in the bank is going to be transferred around and used by whatever in the meantime. Uh, and it's loyalty and creating information that can be sold. So, that's the entire purpose. Everything that's ever been said about the internet and about free and open, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's all a sales pitch for this clearly more insidious thing. How can we commercialize it? Uh, how can we sell it to other people and how can we take this data and how can we take personal interactions and turn them into something quantifiable? So that's a point that gets driven in a lot more by Franklin Foer. Uh, and this is from his 2017 world without mind, the existential threat of big tech. I have read from this book before, and I still strongly recommend it. Um, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows is going to be my constant kind of go-to in terms of dealing with the consequences of the uh, interface revolution, post-interface revolution technologies. So I was talking about cell phones, talking about uh, the always-on internet, the internet of things. The Shallows is the the book that's fucking amazing, and it's super necessary. Uh, this book is definitely up there. There's some differences I have with them and everything, but again, for the most part, it's really great. So kind of laying it out here, he's got a chapter called the Google theory of history. It's talking about Larry page and his brother, Carl page jr. His dad was also Carl page senior. Um, and talking about artificial intelligence, the kind of the early discussions that would lead to Google. Uh, the pursuit of artificial intelligence required computational acumen and a knack for algorithmic thinking. But if you want to replicate the working of the human brain, you had to intimately understand your model. AI, in other words, required psychology. Engineers read Freud just like the literary critics and reinterpreted him for their own purposes. They debated Chomsky about the nature of the mind. The AI pioneers formulated their own intoxicating theory of the human mind. They believed that the brain itself, the brain is itself a computer device controlled by programs. This metaphor provided a near, fairly neat description of their own task. They were building a mechanical machine to imitate an organic one, but the human mind is a mysterious thing. So creating algorithms to replicate the inner workings of such an inscrutable mass of tissue was a complicated and controversial task. Carl Page had his own idea about how to go about it. He posited the procedures contained in Robert's Rules for Order, late 19th century manual for running effective meetings could provide a basis for the building AI. There weren't many scientists working on artificial intelligence in those years. They made for a fascinating little subculture. That's how sociologist Sherry Turkle 
studied them in her classic tome, The Second Self. Because she was perched at MIT herself, she had a fairly unimpeded view of her subjects. The portrait she constructed was so piercingly apt that they may not have been able to recognize themselves in it. Artificial intelligence, she concluded, wasn't a lofty engineering goal. It was an ideology. She compared AI with its theories about programmable mind to psychoanalysis and Marxism as, quote, a new way of understanding almost everything. It's a quote from Turkle. In each case, the central concept restructures understanding on a large scale for the Freudian, the unconscious, for the Marxist, the relationship to the means of production. For the AI researcher, the idea of program has to transcend value, has to be transcendent value. It is taken as the key, the until now missing term for unlocking intellectual mysteries. So that is forward driving in a little bit more the entire idea that Artificial intelligence isn't just about trying to replicate a convincing human mind, but to make the human mind convincingly appropriate for interacting with artificial intelligence. This is domestication on an entire another level. This is about breaking down the mind and the way we relate to the world into one that is more uh, useful and sellable in a world of machines, in a world where machines are the means through which we interact and potentially the end goal, which isn't some far off distant future. This is clearly what is happening right now in very small ways, but repeatedly and often. So there's another section here from Fowers world without mine. Algorithms append the scientific method. The patterns emerge from the data from correlations unguided by hypothesis. They remove humans from the whole process of inquiry. Writing in Wired, Chris Anderson argued, we stop looking for models. We can analyze the data without hypotheses about what it might show. We can throw the numbers into the biggest computing clusters the world has ever seen and let statistical algorithms find patterns that where science cannot. Just interjecting real quick, again, this rings particularly true with the Cambridge Analytica stuff and just really uh, the underlying nature of this really corporate espionage and stuff like that this this intrusive nature of data collection it doesn't need to have an agenda it doesn't need to have an ideology it's really about we're just going to collect the data and of course there's there's been instances where they manipulate it where they turned uh you know facebook in particular had a lot of very questionable things that got some attention but then didn't really seem to go anywhere in terms of just messing with people's feeds to, to see how they responded to it anyways going back to the book here On one level, this is undeniable. Algorithms can translate languages without understanding words, simply by uncovering the patterns that undergird the construction of sentences. They can find certain coincidences that humans might never even think to seek. Walmart's algorithms found that people desperately buy strawberry Pop-Tarts as they prepare for massive storms. Still, even as an algorithm mindlessly implements its procedures, and even as it learns to see new patterns in the data, it reflects the minds of its creators, the motives of its trainers. Both Amazon and Netflix use algorithms to make recommendations about books and films. One-third of purchases on Amazon come from these recommendations. These algorithms seek to understand our tastes and the tastes of like-minded consumers of culture, yet the algorithms make fundamentally different recommendations. Amazon steers you to the sort of books that you've seen before. Netflix directs users, directs users to the unfamiliar. There's a business reason for this difference. Blockbuster movies cost Netflix more to stream. Greater profit arrives when you decide to watch more obscure fare. Computer scientists have an aphorism that describes how algorithms relentlessly hunt for patterns. They talk about torturing the data until it confesses. Yet this metaphor contains unex- unexamined implications. Data, 
like victims of torture, tells its interrogator what it wants to hear. Sometimes the algorithms reflect the subconscious of its creators. To take an extreme example, the Harvard professor Latanya Sweeney conducted a study that found users with African-American names were frequently targeted by Google with ads that bluntly suggest they had arrest records in needs of expunging. Google is not particularly forthright about why such results appear. Their algorithm is a ferociously guarded secret, yet we know that Google has explicitly built its search engine to reflect values that it holds dear. It believes that the popularity of a website gives a good sense of its utility. It chooses to suppress pornography in its search results and not, say, anti-Semitic conspiracies. It believes that users will benefit from finding recent articles more than golden oldies. These are legitimate choices, and perhaps wise business decisions, but these are choices, not science. That's the end of that quote, and just a little quick quote here. Facebook will never put it this way, but algorithms are meant to erode free will, to relieve humans of the burden of choosing, to nudge them in the right direction. Algorithms fuel a sense of omnipotence and the condescending, condescending belief that our behavior can be altered without our even being aware of the hand guiding us in a superior direction. That's always been a danger of the engineering mindset. As it moves beyond its roots in building inanimate stuff and begins to design a more perfect social world, we are the screws and rivets in the grand design. So there you have it. That's from, again, Franklin Fowler's World Without Mind. An excellent book, and you can see at the end there, obviously probably one of the reasons why I am quite fond of it, uh, talking about uh, programmers as the latest engineers in a long history of domestication. And domesticators, the idea, as he says, of the uh, our hide our hand being guided uh, in uh, what he would you know what engineers would say is the right direction. In the engineering mindset is the epitome of domestication. That goes all the way back to when humans were settled into sedentary hierarchical societies built on surplus. And the entire idea is I constantly get in my writing and often repeat on the podcast as well, and will continue to constantly hammer this out further and further, is that you can really see in the patterns of engineers and domesticators how our nature as we were all born individually as nomadic hunter-gatherers, as immediate return hunter-gatherers, comes into play in this entire system that has to constantly be reinforced. So domestication was never something that happened and the engineers just never created something. And it's not like they create a world with artificial intelligence or cell phones and we automatically just start using them. Uh, I mean, if you're just out in the woods and you found a cell phone and particularly when you find a, a cell phone that's new and has nothing on it, I mean, it's, it's just some device and it's, it's nothing. Uh, there's no connection to it. Uh, it's not until you really instill this entire background on it and kind of condition these patterns to get us to use these things and to get us to see things through the particular vision that an engineer has, which is what you need in order to find any use at all on a cell phone. Uh, it's it's insane, and it's insanely malicious. And this is a historical particular that it's it's even been possible. And not talking about cell phones here, but talking about going back to agriculture and the idea that we can break our spirit as each one of us is born uh, a nomadic hunter gathering capable of subsistence and capable of sustenance and capable of having community and looking for community and just take each part of these things that we need as a social animal 
we'll tear it apart, repackage it and push us back into this mold so that we become producers, that we become complacent with the entire order of the domesticated world of the world as it has been narrated by the people who are crafting and needing us to do these specific things. So it's, it's insane. And it's insane to see this level of functioning. And there's been, and I know I've said this before, I will say it a million times. It probably gets old to a certain degree, but it can't be said enough. There's no single technology in the entire history of humanity that spread as fast and as wide and as universally as a cell phone has. Not even fire, not even bows and arrows. None of these things compared to what the cell phone has done in terms of a single technology being so widely used and so widely available and also so widely attached to this entire engineering, not just mindset, but reality where we're, we're plugged in and we're taking in all of our information, having our interactions through it. And I, I can't overstate this. I can't oversell this. What, what forward is getting at and what a lot of the stuff that's critical of this and where it's been collected and where it hasn't been collected. And as it relates to more information that comes out, particularly by cases like the Cambridge Analytica case, um, which there's going to be more that comes out about all this. And I think that, uh, is Facebook is, is really getting a lot of attention, uh, particularly in Europe where they're talking about regulation, which good luck. Um, you know, I mean, there's just going to be more that comes out. So it's important to kind of have this understanding and to kind of understand that this is the way that we're relating to the world. And these are the implications of it. And it's not just about getting us prepared for this future of artificial intelligence, but having us break so that we can believe that artificial intelligence is already there. And that's, that's what's happening. That's how we're not able to distinguish what is real anymore and what is not. And you get in these arguments with people, if you are on social media, where it can just be absurd and unending. Um, so to bring that around to another point, um, I've been asked before uh, why myself and John Zerzan don't spend more time responding to some of the things that are talked about on Facebook. Uh, I don't care. I don't go on there really. Uh, I've got somebody else who, who handles a lot of the black and green stuff where it even goes. And I'm constantly tempted to just delete it all. Uh, but it, I mean, I will admit it is hard having projects in the era of social media. It's, it's very hard getting books out there. It's very hard promoting these projects and get people to actually write instead of just wanting to like or respond or react to a piece. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I know that the stuff that goes on on Facebook, the stuff that goes on shit sites like Eric's News or something like that, I, I, I genuinely just don't look at it. I don't care. I don't want anything to do with it. If you have something you actually want to say, send us an email. Send us a response. Send us an actual thing that you thought about instead of just saying, you know, fuck, you used uh, anthropology or whatever. You, you don't believe that just killing everybody is okay. What, whatever kind of bullshit is happening on there, I don't really care. Um, it's, it's not real to me. It shouldn't be real to most people, although it's become very obvious as, as all this stuff is shown, the Cambridge Analytica stuff is shown, the entire Russian hacking thing is shown. People do take this shit very seriously. And I suppose you have to because people are going out and just killing because of it. Um, and entire policies and relationships and the way people interact with the world as, in, as a whole is changing around this, which is fucked up. Uh, but why I don't take it seriously? One is because it requires looking at it and I'm not interested in doing that. And 
Uh, I know John just does not look at Facebook. It's, it's a whole other world to him. He doesn't even know about it. Um, I've even tried to tell him before about some of the stuff that I know goes on in the Anarchy Radio by John Zerzan page and stuff like that. Uh, so detached from reality. It's, it's hard to even comprehend where where it's coming from and where it's going. But anybody who knows John has, has known for a long time the school shooting phenomenon has been a major subject of his talks about it every single week on the show because of course it's happening every single week uh and has made a a big point to talk about how this is one of the downsides of modernity yet on that group i hear about how there's all this shit being posted about how it's just false flag operations and just peddling this kind of info wars crazy ass conspiracy theory stuff where there's there's no point it has no relation at the, at the point where it lives in social media and the point where it lives in Facebook and is self-propagating, at that point, whatever real-world thing it's attached to doesn't matter anymore. So in that particular case, it's a shame because it is attached to John's name, and I think there are people who see it, and they'll see things on Facebook they think is coming from either John or myself, and it isn't. Uh, but, you know, to respond to it means looking at it, means wading through it, and I don't really care. And also, a lot of the stuff that gets pushed around on there in terms of just baiting these conspiracy theories or baiting these really kind of crazy, particularly right-wing ideas um, and kind of throwing them in the mix and these weird libertarian anarcho-capitalist kind of things that get tossed into the entire mix. It's just kind of a shitstorm, and I don't really want to get involved in it. We've got enough stuff going on in the real world what we're actually dealing with, and it's easier for me to... I wouldn't just say it's easier. It's, it makes more sense for me to be talking about the platforms and the entire interface and the relationship of that technology to the world and to the kind of predatory, just reacting, responding, trolling, um, blind kind of bullshit thing that happens online. It's easier for me to deal with the entire phenomenon than to actually say that, well, you know, the whole thing's fucked, but maybe this person makes a good point or maybe they don't. If they made a good enough point, deal with it in real life. That's just what it comes down to. But for the most part, it doesn't matter. And when I was on Facebook, I deleted my account years ago. Um, it just became this unending thing. And I had years where my, my actual output was low, but I was constantly working on this stuff. I was constantly arguing with people and I would get tagged into everybody's fucking threads and I'd just be knee deep like four or five times or four or five at a time of these threads that would go on for like two or 300 comments. People jump in here and there. Somebody's fucking uncle comes in and says this or that. Somebody's parent or brother or sibling comes on and sees one thing. And it's just, it's a fucking mess. And the entirety of it is meant to be unending. It's to be immersive. So you feel like you're having discussions. You feel like you're having community. You feel like you're having valid for most importantly, validation for your worst ideas. Uh, and defining yourself by arguing with other people's worst ideas of themselves. And really it, the entirety of it is just to keep you going and to keep building up data, to keep collecting information, to keep turning everything that you say, everything you do, everything you like combined with real world things. So even if you've got a Facebook page that doesn't have your real name on it or whatever, if you've got that on your phone, anywhere you go, and, and this is something that's also come out through the Cambridge Analytica is that it can track non-registered users just as much. They're just as interested, if not more interested, 
in finding out about the people who haven't actually registered for the project because it's a goal. It's like another one of these nerdy things. How do we get those people to join the network? How do we get them to become integrated? How do we learn to target ads to draw them back in? Uh, and they do that because every single thing you do on that piece of equipment online or off can be tracked back to certain algorithmic information. Uh, and I know that's what people say. It's like, I encode this, I encode that. All this shit goes through the same devices. It doesn't matter how much you encode it. It's going to have that same information stored one place or another. And if somebody wants to send me a super encoded email of some letter that they've got for black and green review or something like that, there's nothing to say that all the information you would want from that email or from that message isn't stored in that file. It's sent to me, goes on my computer. There's no reason to believe it's not pulling all this information. Everything that we are seeing validates the idea that anything that exists on these platforms or anything that exists within range of these cell phones is going to become the potential weaponized target and use of that technology and that platform. It sounds crazy, but it is. I mean, it is crazy. This is really the world that we live in. Uh, and it, it is really kind of this uh, almost comical extreme of what is possible with technology and, and the level of, it, like I said, going beyond just surveillance into just this intrusive thing to churn and domesticate on this, this very, very deep level to churn unpredictable humans into predictive consumers and into people who are prone to follow the predictions offered by machines. And that is a big thing that Sunflower gets into. And I think that the numbers that he gives, I think he says a third of all purchases on Amazon and clicks on Netflix and things like that are, are because of the recommendations. It's probably a lot higher than that. And it's going to be a lot harder to understand that. And, and cars had stuff about that. Uh, about Google, and there's been other books that have been out that are also important about the entire idea about the algorithms of search engines and the entirety of the internet becoming an immersive experience by making you feel special, by making you feel validated, by showing you the world that you want to see, uh, which is not the real world. It's not the way the world really works. If you need to be told that, take a break from the technology. Strongly encourage it. I encourage it for everybody. Uh, even myself, um, but that's that's an issue. So that's where all this stuff is going. Um, you know, we want to talk about domestication. Here it is. Here is the most extreme version of it, and it's on your phone. And you're carrying it with you, and no matter how safe you think you are from it, no matter how much you think having any kind of critique of technology, having any kind of critique of civilization might matter, it doesn't change the kind of neurological biological, uh, and of course, social and ecological impacts that these technologies are having on your life. None of us are exempt from the consequences of any of this stuff. Um, and that's why a lot of these people who built these technologies don't use it. They don't let their kids use it. Uh, it's, just, it's crazy. Uh, but it's, it's showing how much they see the world this way and also how much they're actually changing the world. So just to kind of close out on that, uh, I want to draw back to Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress. Uh, it was one of these proceedings he had over the last week. Um, and I, I think it lit out a little bit of information that really showed how these people see these things. And there's no reason to believe when they say some of the stuff that they 
are just so unaware of it themselves that they're not telling the truth. Uh, and so when he was asked about if Facebook had a monopoly on, uh, I don't know, how do you say it? Communications or communication information and looking at communications in an industry, Zuckerberg's genuine response was, it can't be because people still spend most of their day or a lot of their time not looking at these screens. Which is another point that Flora gets into, another book point a lot of these books get into. Uh, the attention and the the audience that they see when they're building these predatory platforms is what are people doing when they're not looking at our page and how do we get them to look more at our page? Which again, why having arguments about technology on Facebook serves Facebook's interests. But this is, this is the degree of it. It's, it must be this, this literal kind of totality that civilization and domesticators have always wanted to create. Here it is right in front of you on this fucking phone, on this computer, on all these networks. And it's crazy. And we're living in it, and we're seeing it. And yet, as things are going down, as things are collapsing, people are still so enmeshed in it that it's still hard to say, pull your head out of your ass. This is where it's at. So, closing on that, uh, just do the normal black and green order of business. The two newest books that we got are Black and Green Review number five, and my book, Gathered Remains a collection of essays called or subtitled byline essays on wildness, domestication, community and resistance. Those books are available through black and green review.org on the products page. All previous podcasts are on the black and green review.org page as well under the black and green podcasts tab on that page. You'll also find uh, how to send us an email, send us a message, send us a physical letter. If you've got something you want to address or something you want to talk about, uh, you can send it there. And if it's good enough or pertinent enough, I'll read it on there and respond to it on future episodes. Uh, but you can also donate to all black and green projects through there using PayPal or using Patreon. Uh, that goes a long way. I'm going to hit the wall pretty damn quick here in terms of the free storage I've got for posting these podcasts. Uh, I have dropped the file size down considerably, uh, and that's helped a lot, but uh, if I want to keep hosting them anywhere other than archive, which is good, uh, then I'm going to have to put some money into it and always looking for other things to improve the quality a little bit as well. But uh, I'm working on a ton of writing this year, a ton of books. Black and Green is going to be putting out a lot of stuff. Black and Green Review number six is going to be out later this year. The deadline for it right now is September 1st. And please do not wait till last minute. We have a pretty extensive editorial process and we like discussing things. We like helping push people's ideas and trying to make the most of everything. So if you've got something you're interested in sending, you can email that to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And uh, we'll start working with you as soon as possible, or we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, other than that, yeah, black and green stuff. Those books are out. Check them out. And uh, if you got any questions or comments, feel free to send them my way. Thanks.